If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, begin reading at the first verse. John writes and says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. See, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give him, excuse me, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you to give us understanding in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us grace and by your Holy Spirit wisdom. So, Lord, we'd understand what your word says in this portion, and also we'd understand how it applies to us and how we ought to be believing in you, trusting in you, and living before you. So give us grace, we pray now at this time. Bless each one who's here. Help us to attend to your word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and minds. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, Heavenly Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
and Savior, for in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. This is a long chapter, but it can be broken up pretty easily into some shorter sections to get what's there. So uh, don't let the length of the chapter worry you. You should be out of here by 4 o'clock today, I think. (laughs) Try to get done on time. Um, As we look at this, it starts off, he sees a lamb on Mount Zion. This is uh, telling, and with him are 144,000, he says, having his father's name uh, written on their foreheads. Some manuscripts say his name and his father's name. The idea is, though, they belong to God. Uh, This is an important text because you keep in mind chapter divisions and verses, those were added later to help in the reading of Scripture in the uh, meetings of the saints. And so chapter 14, you know, that says 14 there, but originally this was the revelation from John, or from Jesus, given to John, and it just read as one book. So we separate chapter 14 from 13, and we probably shouldn't necessarily always do that, at least uh, intellectually we need to go back and remember. Chapter 13 had to do with the beast, and well, first the dragon, and then the beast from the sea, and then the beast from the earth, and then the image of the beast, and then uh, the uh, second beast causes the image to come alive, and all kinds of things are happening, you know, and generally understood to me, you know, the dragon is the devil. He's identified pretty clearly as being Satan or the old the serpent. Um, then you have the beast, generally understood to be pagan Rome from the time of uh, John's day when things really went bad in the empire and they began to persecute Christians. Uh, in a very, very bloody time. So the tin royal, not royal, the tin imperial rather, uh, in persecutions in the Roman Empire were intense. Uh, it started a little bit before John wrote. They began, and we see these unfold. The uh, Domitian one is the one that John was exiled to the island of Patmos. They go all the way up, ten more of them, different times, different locations, up until the uh, beginning of the fourth century, actually. The last one, the most severe, was the Diocletian one, and he murdered every Christian he could get his hands on. I say he, the emperor, he gave the orders. And they burned every manuscript they could find. And anyone that was in possession of them was put to death. Horrible times. So that in chapter 13, if that's the prophetic allusion to what was going to happen, it fits pretty well. I say, if not by fulfillment, pretty clearly by application. There were warnings there. And the idea that if you didn't go along with it, if you didn't show your submission first to the uh, Roman emperors, declare them to be deity, because, you know, the idea that Caesar is Lord was the safety catchphrase. You had to be able to say that and acknowledge him as head over everything. And then later in the Middle Ages with the growth of the papacy, if you didn't acknowledge the Bishop of Rome as the head of the church uh, with all of his usurpations and claims, uh, you'd be put to death. And I say historians estimate there were close to maybe 50 million people that died during the Middle Ages. And if you go back and read the histories of the martyrs and and others, you see it was a horrible time. And then God sent the Reformation graciously. Uh, That time came to an end. But we see, you know, you had to receive the mark of the beast. Well, here now we come to chapter 14. Remember, we've met the 144,000 earlier when they were sealed by God. Uh, They the, um, the 144,000 way back in chapter 7, we have them sealed. And it's pretty clear it's a symbolic representation of the full number of God's elect. You know, it's 12 times 12,000. And so we find this, this perfect number there. But then we see from chapter 7 on all these persecutions and tribulations. And so when we come to this chapter, we see the Lamb, it's Jesus Christ, he set forth as the Lamb because it's by His sacrifice that they're saved. You know, we're saved because of the blood of Jesus. We sang about that a little bit earlier. It's because of what Jesus has done for us. And so when they stand there, they're standing with Jesus, the redeemed, on Mount Zion. Some have said this is actually a picture of the church on earth. Because, you know, it says in Hebrews that we're already, and then also in Ephesians, that we're already seated with Christ in heaven. So legally, we're already there. So this could be a picture of God's triumphant church on earth generally understood to mean the uh, the church in heaven but it's it's actually maybe an arbitrary division it's God's church redeemed by the blood of Christ and they stand on Mount Zion 
you know, we're associated with the heavenly Zion. The writer of the Hebrews tells us that we've come to the, the heavenly Zion. You know, the heavenly Jerusalem is our home. And there he is standing on Mount Zion. And with him 144,000. Note it's not 143,999. There's none missing. All those whom the Father has given to the Son have been redeemed. They've been saved. They've been sanctified. And they have been kept. They've been kept inwardly by the Holy Spirit working in them in their sanctification. They've been kept outwardly in that nothing came upon them that caused them to be separated from the love of God which was in Christ their Lord. And, you know, uh, this is a beautiful picture here. And so we see, you know, in the world, his king, you know, the Antichrist, his kingdom is over every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. And here we see the 144,000 that persevered through that. They did not receive the mark of the beast. And now note, their father's name is written on their foreheads. Remember, that's one of the places where the mark of the beast was put. And as I said yesterday, or last, yesterday, last week rather, we had a few days in between my last sermon, if I remember right, um, where you have the, uh, the mark that was put on their forehead. Uh, it was a, a symbolic, and I believe it represents the same thing in the law where God said they were to bind his word to their hand, their right hand, and to their foreheads. Now, the Orthodox uh, Jews... These have little phylacteries, little leather boxes. They actually bind portions of Scripture to their forehead, and then they put it on their hand in order to physically fulfill what God spoke of in the law. But we generally understand that to mean God's talking about the way you act and the way you think. And so here we see that the 144,000 are identified by having God's name, God the Father's name, written on their foreheads. In other words, they're not ashamed of their confession of faith. You know, if you write something on your foreheads, people are going to know it about you. You know, if I write, hello, you're going to go, hey, he's a pretty friendly guy, I guess. Uh, you know, he's got hello written on his forehead, okay? Um, but if you have God the Father's name written on your forehead, that means people that see you and have dealings with you should come away from it recognizing that you're a person that does trust in the Lord. You belong to God. Your thinking is controlled by your relationship with God. And that's the way it should be. And, and by the way, when I say control, that means the word of God is in your heart and mind. And it affects how you live. And so when people see you, they see the love of God expressed. They see your desire to do what is right. They see your uh, hatred, not of, of people, but of evil things that hurt people. And they see that. They should see that. Well, these 144,000, they have the Father's name written on their foreheads. They're not a Now, that's a symbol. The idea is they're not ashamed of their confession. They're upfront about it. You know, if you actually, you know, if you write, I love Jesus on your forehead, don't do that, by the way, physically. I don't think that's what this is about. But if you wrote that on your forehead, people would probably come away from it. Hopefully, if you didn't write it backwards in a mirror, um, they'd look at you and they'd go, oh, that's, that person loves Jesus. How do you know? It's written on his forehead. Okay? Well, God wrote it on their foreheads. They're marked. And the interesting thing is, you're going to have one mark or the other. People either have the mark of the beast on their foreheads or they have the name of God written on their foreheads. There is no neutrality, little application right here early on. And so we see this. Um, they're there, but they're not just standing there. There's activity going on. It's, you know, His Father's name is written on their foreheads. And then just says, and I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters. Now, if you ever stood by you know, a waterfall or just a, a raging river, uh, the voice of many waters, it's a thunderous noise, and he actually describes it. And like the voice of loud thunder, but it wasn't incoherent. It wasn't just noise, because he says, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. Uh, I love it in the, in the original, it's, and I heard the sound of harpists harping on their harps. Okay? Uh, and the same root word for the, the verb and the, the things they were doing and the people doing it. Harpist harping on their harps is what he heard. And their praise of God, because that's what we're told, they sang as it were a new song before the throne. Their praise of God was absolutely thunderous. This is the redeemed standing on Mount Zion with Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, praising God. What a picture. We've seen all these dark things in the last chapter, like the beast and the dragon and you know the mark of the beast. And if you don't get it, you can't buy or sell and people are dying right and left. And, you know, they're putting people to death that won't receive it. And then God 
you might see kind of broadens the picture, shows you what's really going on. God has a purpose and a plan in history. And like he told uh, Elijah, he still has 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. In this case, it's 144,000, which again, I believe, is a symbolic number showing the full number of God's elect. God has his people that he's given to his son. And there they are seen before the throne of God with thunderous praise. This should inform us in our singing and praise and worship publicly and privately. If ever there was a people that ought to be singing forth thunderous praise to God, it's us. Why? Because Jesus Christ died for us. You're not going to hell. You deserve to go to hell. You deserve to be separated from God. You deserve to be tormented in the fires of hell. But Jesus said, no, that's not going to happen. The Father said, no, that's not going to happen. And he gave you to Jesus Christ. And Christ loved you enough to come, take a human nature to himself, and die on the cross there and undergo the hell that you and I deserve. So we have every reason to praise God. He forgave us. He brought us out of the pit. We've been redeemed. You know, I love it in the, in the song by Charles Wesley, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound, uh, in basically in darkness. And then the word of God came and he said, the chains fell off and I went forth free. That's a paraphrase. The song's written much better than I just uh, referred to it. But we've been redeemed. We've been brought out of the pit. We are no longer under the sentence of death and damnation because you had someone that loved you enough, even in eternity, to come into this world and die for you. So their praise is thunderous. They know. There's nothing fog in their minds. They know exactly why they're there. They know exactly who they're with. They know who they are. And they are praising God. They're, you can be sure they're not just lightly hang, you know, hit, touching the strings. They're, they're pounding it out, you might say, on their songs. Beautiful, too. And you see the harmony, the unity. He can tell what it is. They've got a song to sing. They sing, as it were, a new song before the throne. Uh, before the four living creatures and the elders. That's, again, symbolic representations of the angels and the redeemed. Uh, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who, rede- who were redeemed from the earth. And I think the words of that song are given to us uh, later. And when we see here uh, in chapter 15, in verses 3 and 4, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. That may be the song that they were singing, but you might say, well, wait a minute, just said nobody could learn that song. Well, you know, as you know, there are people who know the words of hymns, but they don't really know what it's about. You know, um, they might know Amazing Grace as a song, Sadly, there are people that know the words to that song and can probably sing it better than anyone here, perhaps, because they're trained in that art. But as far as what it really means to say that they're saved by grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So it's one thing to know a song, the words. It's another thing to actually know it in your heart. Remember, we've talked in times past about the different words for knowledge in Greek. You have oida, which means perception, gnosko, which is can be intellectual knowledge. And then I love the word epignosko. They take gnosko and add the preposition epi to it, and that means that experiential knowledge. You know, it's the difference between knowing there's cake in the refrigerator and eating the cake, okay? Uh, you've experienced it. Don't start, don't start thinking about cake now, okay? I know there's a party later today. Uh, but... You know, if there's cake and you've tasted it, and the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. God wants you to have that experiential knowledge of who He is. So they know the words of this song. They know what they're singing about. They're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And they sing, and nobody can learn it except them because uh, they've experienced it. They know what the song is about. It's a song of redemption. It's a song of praise. And so when we sing, by the way, this also shows us, because the Bible tells us we're to praise God with understanding. When we sing the hymns, you're like me, you kind of have to discipline your mind because sometimes in the middle of a hymn you realize you're thinking about something else and not focusing on the words that are coming out of your mouth. That's vain worship, actually. That can be a violation 
of the third commandment to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You say, well, I wasn't swearing or anything. The Hebrew action in that commandment, third commandment, is you shall not lift up the name of the Lord your God in vain. That was taken so seriously in ancient times that the Hebrews would not pronounce the name that we today pronounce as Yahweh or Jehovah. They wouldn't say that. They would say another word. They'd say uh, Adonai, which means our Lord, instead of saying his, the, the actual proper name, Yahweh. They didn't want to say it because they were afraid of the third commandment. They thought, well, if my mind is distracted and I lift up God's name, then I'll be sinning. And God says he won't hold a person guiltless who takes his name or lifts up his name for an empty purpose. So, sad to say, and this is a strange thought in one sense, but one that needs to be mentioned. We can actually sin against God while we're in worship by not focusing on what we're doing. You know, by having our minds distracted and thinking about our worldly activities or recreations or lunch or who knows what, or relationships, etc. Sometimes when we come into church, we're troubled. And so if your mind's distracted, go to God. And don't beat yourself up if you're having trouble getting focused. But get focused. Say, Lord, I'm here to hear your word. I'm here to sing your praises. I'm here to give thanks to you. Help me to really focus. You know, one of the problems... By the way, we love children. The kids here, I think, are great, all right? And there's been babies in church services since apostolic times, no doubt. So when the little ones are making a wee bit of noise, it's okay, all right? If it gets too much, the mom knows what moms know what to do, and dads too. That's not a problem, okay? Uh, but the, it's super important as parents, when your children are in church, the little ones, teach them where they are. Teach them where they are, okay? That, and I've actually said that a couple of times to some of the kids. They get a little older. I've tapped them on the shoulder. Some of you may know this. Some of you children may remember back in youth, and I'd say, "Do you know where you are?" I will tell you this, sometimes I want to tap a few adults on the shoulder and say, by the way, do you do you know where you are? Well, yeah, I'm in church. Okay, just wasn't sure from what I've seen going on. It's important for us to be focused on what's going on in church, okay? Now, that means when you're singing praises, we should really be singing them. When we're confessing our faith, we should really be doing that. They sang a song that nobody else could learn. Why? Because it was unique to them. And you can be pretty sure in the picture here, if you were to go and find the Apostle John, if you had a time machine or something, went back and asked him, John, when you saw that, and you saw those harpers harping on their harps, 144,000 with their thunderous praise coming forth in praise to God, were they focused on what they were doing? I think I know what he'd say, right? He'd say, yeah, they were. They really were focused. They were, the lamb was right there. They were looking at Jesus, and they were singing God's praises. That's us. If that's symbolic of the full number of God's elect, his full redeem, that's you. That's a picture of you. So God wants you to be focused on his worship. He wants you to... to and the reason why it's not like, you know, you're, you've got to be disciplined, stand at attention for an hour or something like that. It's not the, the purpose. It's not punishment. The idea is that God wants you to be blessed. And we get blessed when we look unto him, as he says in Isaiah, look unto me all the ends of the earth and be ye saved. So as we look to the Lord, as we focus, we're changed. Paul refers to that saying that we all with unveiled faces, not like Moses who put a veil over his face when he came back down from Mount Zion, excuse me, Mount Sinai with the law. We're looking at Christ. He says, and we all with unveiled faces at looking uh, to Christ like in a glass, we're changed from glory to glory to the image of God. It transforms us. And so when I say focus, I mean focus on Jesus. Be in a state of prayer during the, the service. When you're listening to this sermon, you know, which I hope you're, you're making an effort to do now, you know, pray. Pray for the guy preaching it. Preachers make mistakes. We leave stuff out. Sometimes it needs to be said. Sometimes we add stuff that doesn't need to be said. Pray for the guy preaching. But pray that as the word goes forth, that you are able to hear it, understand it, believe it, and receive it. Or maybe receive it and believe it, that both things happen at the same time. So here we see this 144,000 with their thunderous praise, singing a song before God and before the elders and the four living creatures. 
And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. And now we're talking talk about their character. These are the ones who were not defiled with women. Now this passage is not teaching celibacy. This is a symbolic book. Paul himself in uh, Corinthians refers to the fact that he had espoused them to God, uh, the church there, as chaste virgins. And what he means by that is that he didn't want them to be polluted with idolatry. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we might want to look at that just so he can get some insight using Scripture to interpret Scripture. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, Paul, writing to the church, this is the second letter he wrote to Corinth. First one, he rebuked them for a lot of things that were wrong, but it wasn't a mean rebuke because he told them how to correct the problems, and they did deal with things. He was very happy about that. But then he says in uh, chapter 11, at verse 2, he says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband. He's talking about their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, he's writing to married people in the church and single people. So he's not saying you guys need to separate, you know, in your marriages and live, you know, lives of celibacy. He's saying that I want you to be pure before God and not be polluted with idolatry. You know, in the Old Testament, idolatry and worship of false gods was often referred to as adultery, about Israel committing adultery against their covenant with God. And the word, you know, marriage is a covenantal relationship. I've mentioned before, the word wedding in English comes from the Anglo-Saxon word, and I knew all those years of studying Anglo-Saxon would eventually pay off someday. That word comes from the Anglo-Saxon word for covenant. A wedding is a covenanting. Okay? When you renewed your wedding vows, a couple weeks ago, you recovenanted, you know, Alan Kitty, you know that. You know, you re-enter, you reaffirmed that covenant. When we have the Lord's table each week, we reaffirm our covenantal relationship. Jesus said, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So we reaffirm that. A wedding is a covenant. And that's what the, the, what, that's what the word to wed means, uh, I say, originally in English. And so it's a covenanting. Well, Paul says, you know, you're in covenant with Christ, and I want you to be pure before God when Christ returns for the great wedding feast of the Lamb, when we're all gathered together to be with him forever. So we see this idea of being a chaste virgin doesn't have anything to do with physical celibacy. And the Bible actually, Paul writes elsewhere, he told Timothy, see that the younger widows marry, etc., and uh, you know, bear children and rule, rule the house, etc., those things. And so... Uh, marriage is the normal situation. So this, again, is a symbolic picture. He's saying, and we see this, as these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. So we get a picture of their character. Their, their main focus is to praise God and do what Jesus wants them to do. He leads them. Oh, and throughout history, some He's led them to be faithful in their relationships. Some he's led to be missionaries. Some he's led just to be faithful in, on their jobs where they are. But wherever the Lamb leads them, they follow. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. James rep refers that to all the saints. He says we are as first fruits to God. And so we've been redeemed. That's James chapter 1, verse 18, by the way. Uh, we've been redeemed by Christ, and we are first fruits. The first fruits were the... You know, when you had a crop, the very first part of the harvest, you would take that and take it to the tabernacle or the temple and present it as an offering to give thanks to God for what was to come. And so the uh, first fruits, they said that what I've read like from Edersheim and others when they describe from the histories and in the Mishnah and elsewhere, uh, that the temple was absolutely fragrant with because of all the produce that was brought. And they said it's like the steps leading up to it, there was just all kinds of... Uh, first fruits that were presented there and the priest could make use of that and it was just a wonderful time very very beautiful and fragrant and because the people were coming and saying yes God has blessed us here we want to return the first fruits to God and so these the saints the redeemed they're the first fruits it, by God's estimation and because of the work of grace they're the best of the crop and they've been presented to God first fruits note to God and to the lamb and in their mouth, we see how this 
position this relationship carries over. And in their mouth was found no deceit. Remember when Nathanael came to Jesus, Jesus said, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit or no guile. Uh, Jesus knew his heart. Here these are ones by grace. They've been transformed and changed. This is this picture. It's a picture of us and of all of God's church. This is the goal, you might say. You might say, there's been some deceit in my mouth. Well, that's where the blood of Jesus Christ comes in, doesn't it? You know, he forgives your lies. He forgives your dishonesty. But the Bible also says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord doesn't hear me. So we've got to be willing to separate from such things. It takes courage to tell the truth. It really does. When you lie, you're trying to create your own reality. You know, you think, well, I'll, I'll, yeah, I, I didn't do that. And you know you did. And sometimes we have to, you know, be honest about things. It takes courage to do that, and that comes from God. So there's no deceit in their mouth. They're honest. Their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with God the Father through Him, the fact that they've got the Father's name written on their heads, what comes out of their mouth shows that relationship. You know, we used to have this in our culture. I lived at a time, and maybe some of you know people like this even today, but I lived at a time where the idea of sealing a contract with a handshake was not uncommon. Amen. I remember my dad talking about it. Like, well, we shook hands on it, so, you know, yeah, it's, it's done. You know, then, but later on, you know, people weren't always honest, and sometimes, sometimes even with the handshake, there'd be a written contract, so it wasn't like they couldn't, you know, have one. But it used to be because of the influence of the gospel in our culture that a man's word was his bond. Same for a woman. And when you pledge to do something or you promise, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. He said that right after he said, don't don't swear oaths. You don't need to swear an oath. Uh, and um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about, talks about that in The Cost of Discipleship. And he said that, I think rightfully so, he said the reason why Jesus told his disciples you don't need to be swearing oaths that you're going to do something or not do it, because if you say yes, I'm going to do that, or no, I'm not, that is your oath. There's no need to swear an oath in God's name or some lesser thing. If you say yes, do it. Let your word be your bond. Your yes be yes and your no, no. Well, there's no deceit in their mouth, for they are without fault before the throne of God. That's because they're being received in the Lamb. They're, they're with Jesus. And are these people that, that are sinners? It says they were redeemed from among men. They were redeemed. They were bought back. That means at some point they'd been sold. They were under sin. They were under condemnation. But now by the work of grace, when God looks at them, when he looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He separated your sin from you or you from your sin, however you want to say that, as far as the east is from the west. And he says, your sins and your iniquities, you will remember against you no more. That's why they're praising God. They know what they've been given. They know what's happened to them. And again, this is you, beloved. You know, uh, that 144,000, if you can say today, flake that I am, I have to say that. You might not have to. Praise God for Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ in his mercy has given me hope. I believe he has saved me. I'm trusting in him. That's God's mercies. If you can say that today, then we're reading about you here. This is you. This is your faith. You're part of that group, that elect number. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. No doubt about it. The elect are going to be saved. You say, well, what about other people? Well, you leave that to God. Be faithful. Well, I don't know who the elect are. You don't need to know. If he wanted you to know, he would have told you who they were. He would have given you a phone book with names in it and said, here's the elect. Go find them. God wants the gospel preached indiscriminately for his purposes. And until the elect hear the gospel and believe, they're not saved. And so there are, you know, and the Bible says it's a vast number that no man could count. So that, you know, sometimes people talk, you know, when you talk about reform doctrine or election or Calvinism, they say, oh, those Calvinists just believe they're the only ones going to heaven. That is a flat out lie. The, the number of the elect is vast. The fullness of the Gentiles are going to come into the church. There's going to be more people in heaven than in hell, I firmly believe. God's plan and the purpose of God in history is to redeem his elect. But he also is willing to show his justice in the damnation of the reprobate. It's a serious doctrine. But here we see the redeemed. These are the ones that worship the Lamb. 
But there's another angel we, we go on here. We take a few minutes. I don't know if we're going to get through the whole chapter today, but we'll do our best. So then I saw another angel. So we see this first this picture of the redeemed praising God. He says, and I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. <coughs> the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ and the offer of forgiveness of sins to all those that believe in him. So this angel is in heaven. Some say, well, that, could that be symbolic of some great preacher like Martin Luther or something? It, it could be. But it's a picture that he sees, and he's got the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on this. No, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. The reason why that's in there and why that's such an awesome statement, back in chapter 13 when we read about the uh, uh, extent of the kingdom of the Antichrist and all the, the people that he corrupts, it's the same or similar statement that he in verse 7 it was granted to him that is to the beast to make war with the saints and to overcome them temporarily the enemy seemed to prevail it's kind of a picture of the middle ages you might say in the, the lies of sacramentalism uh, and to overcome them and authority was given to him over every tribe tongue and nation so we see the, the catholic nature of the spread of the kingdom of antichrist but here we see that the enemy whether we're speaking of human institutions or of spiritual realms, they can't stop the gospel from going forth. Note this. He preaches the gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So those that were under the sway of the beast, those some, you know, some the question is, once they receive the mark, could they then repent and be saved? Uh, it seems that maybe they can, all right? But definitely you don't want to play around with stuff like that. Uh, but he those preaches the gospel, and part of that everlasting gospel is just this in verse 7. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. There is a heaven and a hell approaching, and there's a judgment day taking place. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So he calls them to repent of the relationship with the beast and all those things, and tells them to fear God and do what is right, trust in him. And another angel followed saying, <coughs> Babylon has fallen as well. It's the first mention of Babylon in the book of Revelation. Very first time, Babylon, later on it becomes prominent. And that's the great enemy of God's people, Babylon, spiritual Babylon, whatever that's referring to. Some say, well, that's the papal kingdom. It's every kind of apostasy there is, whether apostate Protestantism, Romanism, you name it, false religions of every kind. That all in a big giant conglomerate it's Babylon the very first thing we're told when it's introduced because keep in mind for God's people these prophecies about Babylon are going to be kind of scary so the first thing it's like sometimes I get a call late at night from my sons one and once in a while they would call and they still do sometimes and if it's late at night the very first thing if it's not an emergency the first thing they do is dad everything, everybody's okay <laughs> and I'm like alright what are you talking about well you know they had a fender bender or something like that I'm like Okay, but he starts off, everything's okay. Because he knows, you know, call it a strange hour. You know, you're, if those of you who are parents, you understand what I'm talking about. Um, and so he starts off that here God's going to be telling us about Babylon, this great enemy of God's people. And the very first thing we're told is, it's fallen. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Twice says that. He says, this, don't worry about this. There's some evil coming, but it's going to be, it's already been dealt with in God's plan. It's going to be dealt with in history also. It's not going to, and so it's like, oh, okay, well, what is it then, you know? Uh, and so here we're told, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. We talk about chaste virgins, now we're talking about the fornication of apostasy, meaning unfaithful uh, covenant breakers. And then we're told a third angel followed, followed them, saying with a loud voice, Again, this is the warning. If anyone worships the beast in his image, keep in mind the everlasting gospel, they were called to worship God. Now he's telling them, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. You know, this is a pretty serious picture. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. We know later in the lake of fire, fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So those who are in hell will be in their torment, in their sin, being punished throughout eternity. 
in the presence of the one that could have redeemed them, the one that they turned their back on, the one that they ignored and despised. So, and then he says, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Some people try to say, oh, hell's just a temporary place where people get burned up and then cease to exist. It's like, have you ever read Revelation 14? It absolutely is a place of eternal torment. And some say, well, yeah, but we're finite creatures, so God just burns them up and like, you know, like burning garbage, and that's the end of them. It's not the end of them. They're, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. The reason why is because we've sinned against an eternal God. Some say, you know, well, but we're just finite creatures. Yes, you're a finite creature. That is, you have your limitations. You were made. You were created. But you sinned against an infinite, eternal God. That's why the punishment in hell of the unsaved, of the unrepentant wicked, is eternal. Because they, the punishment is measured by the one against whom they have sinned. Like one man pointed out, it's a big difference between, shouldn't do it, but there's a difference between throwing a rock at a hobo. You'll be told not to do that. You get arrested. If you hurt him, you'll go to jail, maybe prison, okay? You shouldn't do that. But if you throw a rock at a king, probably going to cost you your life, okay? Because the punishment is measured by the, the dignity of the one against whom you've sinned. And so there's a big difference between the two things. That's just a human illustration. But we've sinned against God. That's why the punishment for sin is eternal. That's why we needed someone who was an eternal person to come into history, take a human nature to himself, and then in his human nature, in his physical body, suffer the full wrath of God so that his deity, because only God is eternal and infinite, so that his deity could uphold his humanity while the full force of the wrath of God was poured out on him on our behalf. What I'm saying is no one but Jesus Christ could save us from our sins. And that's what he did. And what he underwent at the cross is beyond anything we'll ever be able to fully understand. We do understand it. Our knowledge is limited, but it's true because we get it from the one who does know everything. And he's told us this. That Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. That's in the book of Hebrews. So we had one come for us. But those who are outside of Christ, those who have turned their back on God's offer of salvation and forgiveness, um, they'll be tormented for eternity. And we're told, in the smoke of their torment, the sins forever and ever. Note, he's warning them, he's telling them, you need to turn from your sins. Someone say, well, yeah, what if they're not alive? You know, the only thing that keeps people from coming to Christ is their own perverted wills. That's what keeps, God's not pushing anybody away. The door's open. They can come. Who, who eventually does come? Those whom the Father brings out of a state of death into life. So it, it's of grace 100%. It's never man's efforts. But here the warning goes out. And the elect that were among that crowd, maybe they'll hear it. You know, the ones who will be saved, they'll hear it. They'll respond. So here we see the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest. Note that. They have no rest day or night. There's no... Now when people sin, you know, it says in Ecclesiastes, because... The punishment for sin is slow, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are fully set to do evil. People know, hey, if I do something bad, it's not going to get me right now. I'll just, you know, I'll figure out some way to get out of it later, which they don't, by the way, because they can't, because they live in the universe that God made. But it's slow. In hell, there's no delay. Their very existence is a sin against God. They exist as creatures who are hateful to God, and there's not going to be any intermission between what they think, say, or do, their opposition to God, and the punishment that's followed. They'll be hit with the hammers of God's justice the exact moment they sin. There's no delay. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here's the patience and uh, patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Saying that this is that's what separates here right now. Those who belong to Jesus, they take God's law seriously, not because they're trying to be saved by keeping it, but they know God has spoken. They, Out of gratitude, they want to honor him in their lives and the faith of Jesus. And then, he's, then we read this, and we'll end on verse 13 here. He says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So there was going to be martyrdom beyond this time. It speaks to those saints on the earth. 
Yes, says the Spirit. Note, that they may rest from their labors. The ones who end up receiving the mark of the beast and end up in hell, they have no rest day or night. But note what God says. Yes, says the Spirit. That they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Their, their efforts, however, they looked at them and said, oh, I've done nothing for Christ. Well, compared to what he did for us, of course we've done nothing for him. But your efforts to do what is right, to, to show God gratitude by being kind to others or speaking the truth or helping someone or just doing your duty. God's seen that, and that will follow you. Paul said uh, that the good works of men will follow them. So those that are otherwise also can't be hid. So um, here we're, we're told they have rest. And so what a contrast, huh? Those that are those who end up in hell with no rest, day or night, for eternity, and those who have the rest, the peace of God. Note that. Uh, yea, says the Spirit, yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So we'll close there with this picture of the Lamb on Mount Zion praising God, the gospel going forth on earth, the warning given to those who might be tempted to give their allegiance to the beast. It says, don't do that. Worship God, your Creator. And note also what it says there, quickly as we close, when he tells them um, in the... In the uh, that angel in verse 7, he tells him with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Take that seriously. And worship Him, note, who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Notice how the doctrine of creation is central here. Worship the one who made the earth and the heavens and the sea and the springs of water. Worship the Creator the one who made all things. Now it's through his son, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. But again, we see with those who would deny God's work in creation, they show where their allegiance really is. Now sometimes they're just ignorant because they've been taught certain things and they think they're being scientific. And so they say, oh, well, God wasn't involved in any of this, but that's not the case at all. Here they're called to worship God, the Creator, the Redeemer and the Creator. Give glory to him. Fear God. Take him seriously is what that means. So may God give us grace to do that. If you're saved, you're trusting in Jesus, whatever your struggles may be, you belong to Him. God, you know, this picture standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. Positionally in Christ, that's where you are now. So you don't have to say, wow, someday I'm going to really praise God. No, beloved, you can start right now praising Him. If you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, He's your Savior. It's not about how worthy you are, because you're not worthy. And if you're waiting to get worthy before you praise Him, you're never going to praise Him, because you're not worthy in and of yourself. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. So let's look to Him, let's focus on who He is, and say, Lord, I belong to You because You bought me. I've been redeemed. I'll give You all the praise and glory, and I want to serve You. And Lord, I want to really count for something in your kingdom. I want to be your servant. However many days I have left, whatever strength I have, it's yours, Lord, and I want to serve you. Give me grace to really honor you. And to join in this thunderously loud chorus of praise from all of God's redeemed. You know, the name of the Father is written on your forehead. And if you've got a voice, let it praise God. So when we're singing the songs, when we're confessing our faith, not just here, but later on, let us, at God's grace, let us carry over into our daily lives and singing God's praises in our homes and in our daily activities, giving Him thanks and praise. Uh, because that's who we are. That's who you are. How sad it is when someone doesn't know who they are. Remember the story, you probably read it, about um, uh, Queen Victoria back in the... I believe it was the 1840s when she was a young girl and she was looking, you know, studying history. She didn't know too much about herself, but she knew who she was. And she's reading, and they said one day, uh, the future Queen of England, she just looked up. This is before she was just a child, but she looked up and she said, Oh, she said, I didn't realize I was that close to the throne. <laughs> yeah. Reason why I mentioned that is that's, that's us, that's you. You know, you're seated in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. You belong to Him. Heaven is your home. You have right and title to it. And God always keeps His covenant. You don't need to worry like, but 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 Jesus died for your sins. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. 
So praise his name. Give him thanks in everything you do. That's what it says. The last text I'm going to read. In Colossians 3, it says, Now therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. This is Colossians 3 at verse 12. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man has a quarrel with another to another, even as Christ forgave you, even so do ye. And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness or maturity, we would say. And let the peace of God rule in your heart. That's an imperative. It must rule in your heart. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which you are called in one body. And then the old Geneva Bible says, and be ye amiable. Okay? Be ye amiable. The, the Greek can also be rendered thankful. Eucharistoi. Uh, be thankful. But be amiable. Be gentle, is what he's saying here. Let And here's the part. Let the word of Christ dwell in you plenteously in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing your own selves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's that thunderous praise John heard. Singing with a, with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you shall do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, even the Father, by Him. Here's your marching orders. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this section of Scripture. We pray you'd bless us now and be with us. And Lord, bring about in us the things that we uh, heard here today and the things I spoke of. And cause us, Lord, to give, join in that thunderous chorus of praise, Lord, and worshiping you. And Lord, we are excited about your worship and praise. And so we just pray that you'd have that show in our, in our attitude and worship and also in our work that we do and in our demeanor and, and how we carry ourselves toward others in grace and gentleness and in truth. Help us to be covenant keepers. Help us, Lord, to know we're in covenant with you through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And you'll never break that covenant. And by your grace, through your Spirit, you keep us so we don't either. But, Lord, so often when we do sin against you, we're ashamed and sad. So we ask you to forgive us, cleanse our hearts, and assure us of your love and acceptance of us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Turn us away from our sins and turn us fully to yourself. For we ask all these things, Father, in the, the name of the precious Lamb of God, who stands on Mount Zion with all your redeemed, Lord, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.